TED Audio Collective. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. You're growing a business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate, no coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Hello, everyone. This is After Hours. I'm Felix. And I'm Mihir. And it's the two of us. Yeah, we're back. Excellent. What do you got for us today, Felix? I would like to talk about Barnes & Noble. Hmm. It's an incredibly interesting story because not so long ago, we thought this was one of the companies that we might fondly remember, but it didn't have much of a future. Yeah. And now things are developing in a really interesting fashion. And I'm curious to see what you make of it. Yeah, that sounds great. I mean, books are kind of interesting in of themselves, but the industry behind the books is even more so. Yeah. So that'll be fun. What did you bring me here? Well, you know, there's just now an increasing amount of concern about banks, obviously, for reasons <laughs> yes. that we've talked about in our yeah. special episode. But there's now concerns about the next shoe to drop and specifically about commercial real estate, mm. which is such a fascinating industry because inside things like commercial real estate, you have retail and you have office and it's a way to think about the future of work. It's a way to think about the future of retail. So I'm curious what you make of some of the doomsaying around commercial real estate and what it's going to mean for the economy and what it tells us about the shape of the world today. This is an incredible topic, in particular because it's driven by so many fundamentals in the economy. Where do people work? Where will interest rates go? So many of these factors ultimately find their way into commercial real estate. Yeah, so we should talk about that as well. Wonderful. So, Felix, Barnes & Noble, once perhaps left for dead and now coming back? What's the story? Maybe. Who knows? <laughs> so I know you're someone who likes to walk around in cities. And one of the things that you probably noticed is there are many, many new bookstores. Yeah. Since the pandemic in the United States alone, we have about an additional 500 independent bookstores that got started. And that alone I find quite interesting and surprising, but then maybe even more surprising. I don't know if you spend any time at malls, mm. <laughs> but if you did, what well, you will have noticed that there are now new Barnes & Noble stores, yeah. often taking over big spaces of other retailers that have left the mall. And 
it's such an incredible development because, as you pointed out, we all thought we had seen the end of Barnes & Noble. At some point in time, they got acquired by a private equity firm, Elliott Management. They brought in a new CEO, James Dond, which is sort of an interesting person because he is both the CEO of Waterstone, the big UK retailer, but also he runs his own chain of bookstores. Yeah. And he's made some interesting changes. And I'm curious to see if you think he's been really the big change or if it's maybe more true, what we're really seeing is sort of a post-pandemic blip. People were stuck at home, they read a lot of books, and then we were all so <laughs> incredibly happy to be able to go back to stores. And essentially what you see is a little bit of a change that is not going to persist. Where do you come out? Yeah, I love this story because bookstores are fascinating for many, many reasons. But I think him in particular, he's kind of an interesting guy. Yeah. So Daunt Books is this lovely, small, small chain in London, which is a beautiful retail concept. And he has basically started that. Then he started taking and running Waterstones. And now he's doing Barnes & Noble. I mean, one can't imagine another industry where one person has come to dominate the retail environment in the way that James Daunt has come globally to dominate book retailing. The short version of his recipe at least as he says it, is to return bookselling to very local tastes. Mm -hmm. And so he says that by basically empowering local booksellers, you get more heterogeneity and you basically have this kind of hyper-local store, but that also benefits from all the wonders of scale. Yeah. So you need all the wonders of scale to compete with Amazon and everyone else, but then you need localization to really attune what the selection is in a bookstore to what that community wants. So that's been his shtick. And I confess, I want this story to be true. I would love it to be true that this new recipe of really localizing, decentralizing decision-making is really just a new way to think about retail and in particular to think about books. And so I both really want it to be true and I kind of believe it to be true because I think books are different than a lot of other retail areas. Yeah. What do you yeah. make of it? It comes with interesting changes in industry practices. Mm -hmm. You might remember we had these publisher promotion fees and placement fees. So basically what you saw when you first went into a Barnes & Noble, that was entirely basically a space that was auctioned off. I didn't know for a long time that even the bestseller lists that you sometimes see in bookstores, that essentially these bestseller lists were auctioned off. And of course, one of the consequences of that is that a big publisher will then dominate a chain of bookstores in the, exactly the same way. Exactly. And so one of the first things that he did, which enabled this localization that you talk about, is really to say, no, we shouldn't let the publishers have a say in what is being shown because the publisher will always have one program, one book that they really want to push. And it might be right for some markets, it might not be right for other markets. And in a way, you can think about it as promotion fees are really terrible, or you can think, well, actually, the way we implemented promotion fees was really terrible. Right. But it's all towards this idea that we don't want every Barnes & Noble to look the same. Yes. Think about H&M or Zara or whatever. There's a sense in which wherever you walk into an H&M in the world, they're kind of meant to be the same. And he's really trying to change that. And this was one key move to basically allow people to retake that front of store, to tune it to whatever that local taste is. Yeah. And what I find fascinating about the strategy is it's all in the context of competing with Amazon. Right. And obviously, in fulfillment, 
you don't stand a chance. Fulfillment is just Amazon's territory. So what are the kinds of things that Amazon is not doing well? And I don't know about your experience when you go on Amazon, even though I have a longish history of ordering books from them. Their recommendations are terrible. It's absolutely horrible. I think there's a lot of two types of recommendations. Either they recommend the thing that everybody's reading at that time. Yeah. And that, of course, is not hard to do for them, but it's also completely useless because these are the books I already know about. Why on earth would I need recommendations? Yeah. And then when they try to make recommendations in the long tail, they're a trillion miles away from my tastes. I have to say... Amazon still doesn't do discovery well. Aside from the fact, Felix, that your book sometimes does get recommended for me, which I appreciate. Oh, so they're doing something right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but it's kind of remarkable. You're right. They have not gotten discovery right. Yeah. And I think what Daunt figured out is discovery is something that remains at the bricks and mortar level really, really important. Yeah. But to do that discovery well, you need someone. And that's the other interesting part of the story, Felix, which is, he explicitly sometimes and implicitly kind of says this AI-driven approach to figuring out what preferences should be actually needs to be subordinated to these local booksellers. Mm -hmm, and so these mm -hmm. local booksellers are meant to be the ones mm -hmm. who have their finger on the pulse of their community. So that's the other interesting piece here, right? Which he's, yeah. he's kind of really saying that there is local customization driven by human beings, which is the way he wants to run this store. And then... At the same time, AI sort of sneaks in through the back door because if you then look at how the local managers make decisions, they are often informed, in particular when it comes to books for younger people, it's all TikTok. Exactly. And you might ask, why is it that TikTok is so incredible at making these surprising discoveries? And that part of the story I just find completely fascinating. You might remember ByteDance, the company that eventually develops TikTok. One of their early apps was an app called Toutiao, which is a news app for China. Mm -hmm. And in China, you have this issue that the news are obviously dominated by state-owned enterprises, by the public media. And if you want to create an interesting news app, you need to develop an algorithm that is really good at looking in small niches, in nooks and crannies where you might find a story that is not reported broadly. Right. And essentially what the TikTok algorithm does, if you have a new post that post goes into what they call a cold start pool. So you might be famous on TikTok. This might be your very first post. We treat your post exactly like everyone else's, which I find completely fascinating. Mm -hmm. And it's only shown to maybe two to 300 people. And then we read their responses. Do they like it? Do they share it? And so on and so on. If it looks promising, then it goes into a second pool that's about 10% of the posts. And there we show it to anywhere from 10,000 to 100,000 people and only if it performs well in these two pools will it then get promoted and we add personalization and all the data that we know what this means it's an incredible democratization of posts right. because everyone has a chance and if you are a newly famous influencer the algorithm actually works against you because they don't want 
the Kim Kardashian kind of phenomenon on TikTok. It thrives on serendipity and unusual discoveries, which of course is exactly what Barnes & Noble tries to do. So in a way, the social media moment and the Barnes & Noble moment come together in really interesting ways. The other piece of the story that I just think is amazing, Felix, which is who has ushered through this transition? And the answer is Elliott Management. Yeah. <laughs> the book industry is not exactly friendly to private equity as a philosophy. And yet somehow Elliott Management, which is a very large hedge fund and private equity shop, has taken Waterstones, has taken Barnes & Noble, and appears to be making them thrive in a way that the previous owners, so in particular in the Barnes & Noble case, the previous owners kind of ran that business into the ground mm -hmm. in ways mm -hmm. that were not great. And then you see somebody who people would like to vilify as owners actually do something <laughs> that's kind of amazing. So to me, it's also a little bit of a prism on how ownership matters and how the right owner for the right asset can actually make things phenomenally different than they would be otherwise. Yes. And it's an interesting combination of the general private equity play that we're used to. So when James Daunt first comes in within a short period of time, the central workforce that used to do a lot of things for every bookstore in the chain, that gets reduced by about 50% or so. Right. They used to have 40 to 50 people in purchasing. Now they have basically one person and two assistants who do all the purchasing because of the localization. So there are are classic elements of the private equity playbook that you can see here. But then it comes coupled with this really interesting notion of the benefits of localization. One of the stories that Don sometimes shares, which I find really interesting, is if you have this centralized approach and you happen to be a relatively smaller store. Right. One way to run that store is just to say, oh, and you're going to have a fraction of all the books that Barnes & Noble typically has. And so you will have 20% of fiction, you will have 20% of sci-fi, you will have 20% of home repair. And his point is 20% of home repair is useless because yeah. it's the kinds of things that probably no one is looking for. And so it's much better to double down on local curated selection as opposed to trying to be everything to everyone, which is really Amazon's play to begin with. Exactly. And so the question for me, Felix, is first, you raise this question of whether it's durable beyond this yes. overall renaissance in book selling. Are there lessons for the broader retail landscape? There's a piece of me which thinks this is just a book story because of mm. how local preferences matter and the importance of taste making. Mm -hmm. But then I think maybe not. So is the person who's running the gap, is there a lesson to be learned here? Or is it a, really a story about books? I think one of the more general lessons is this change from selection to curation mm -hmm. that you actually see in lots of places. So for instance, if you take textiles, think of Stitch Fix. Mm -hmm. So used to be all the big online models was, oh my God, incredible selection, everything you ever wanted to buy. And then Stitch Finks comes along and they say, no, actually, we're really good at learning your tastes and we're sending you in a subscription-based model the kinds of things that you really want to wear. And I think that's 
general. That is a model that in the beginning of the internet, this was a little hard to see because we weren't used to selection. And so selection seemed so novel and so amazing. And yeah. the more, the better. In fact, when you look at both the growth in Barnes & Noble originally and then the growth in Amazon, it really killed the smallest bookstores first because they just could not compete on selection. And then eventually Amazon almost swallowed Barnes & Noble because Barnes & Noble couldn't compete on selection. But there is this really alternative mode of value creation. Just think about how much time you spend trying to figure out what you would like to read. Yeah, I don't know about your experience. When I speak to some random person employed in a bookstore and I ask, what should I read? Of course, the first thing that they will always ask you is, what have you read last and what did you really like? Right. But I find <laughs> those recommendations just about as successful as Amazon. Not very good. And so this is at the heart of what I'm least sure about Don's sort of way of thinking about the businesses. I like localization. I like the idea that local tastes are different. I'm not sure if a random individual paired with a random customer is that effective a recommendation engine. I share your skepticism about that, and I've had a similar experience <laughs> as you. But I think the broader issue about localization is not the pairing of a random person, but it's got to be the tastemaker, and it's got to be the curator at the store level. So I think it is true that you can walk into a store and feel a difference about what is being laid out. Mm -hmm. And the stuff that is laid out is being done by somebody thoughtful. I think that is very powerful for discovery. Yeah. I've walked into bookstores in London and in New York, and you feel like, wow, these are books I hadn't heard about yeah. and that I'm kind of curious about. Yeah. And so I don't think it's the random person who's working there, but I think there is real talent at local levels in figuring out what local tastes are. And yeah. just that front of store experience can matter an enormously for discovery. Yeah. And that's the part that I do believe in. That's an interesting way to think about curation. Maybe curation doesn't really work that well because there's someone who has superior insight. Maybe curation works really well because then customers self-select. So for instance, in James Don's own chain of bookstores, the books are organized by country. And that means he will not have many genres. Sci-fi, for instance, right. doesn't exist because it's not easy to figure out which country does it take place in. And I think what it does is a particular type of person will then show up in the store and magically, you might think I've did a fabulous job curating, but mostly it's sort of the instinct of the customer, is this the kind of store that I like, that then makes the match a successful one. Right. That story I think is right, but it is more likely to be operative at the Daunt bookstore level than at the Barnes & Noble bookstore level. Meaning with the Daunt level, it's four or five stores, people can come to know Daunt as something. But when you're operating at the scale of Barnes & Noble, the question is, does that same selection work? And I think it could, especially relative to Amazon. Mm -hmm. All mm -hmm. of this story is predicated on the opposition to Amazon. And maybe it can still work there. Yeah. But it raises a deep question about the brand, I think. If your way of thinking about it is right, in some sense, the brand almost stands in the way because 
it raises expectations of similarity, of predictability, when in fact, that's exactly not what we want to do. You shouldn't think that the Barnes & Noble in my hometown tells me anything about my experience in a Barnes & Noble in some other place. And in that sense, maybe the brand is not exactly right. Actually, it's sort of something that should be de-emphasized. I think that's a fascinating question, right? Because once you go to localization, you push against the homogeneity that a brand promises. Yeah. Part of what a brand promises is you know exactly what you're going to get when you walk into these places. Yeah. And now we have a twist on it, which is you know you're going there for a particular product, which is books, but you're going there and knowing that they're going to be attuned to you. So that is yeah. a really interesting question on branding as well. It's such a fascinating story. And part of it, of course, as most of the time, What's really nice is you see an underdog come back. Yeah. One of my favorite things about business is seeing underdogs come back in some fashion with something that looks really promising. And so I think the question persists, is it a post-pandemic blip? And I'm sure we will revisit the underdog's story in some future episode. Support for the show comes from Brooks Running. I'm so excited because I have been a runner, gosh, my entire adult life. And for as long as I can remember, I have run with Brooks Running Shoes. Now I'm running with a pair of Ghost 16s from Brooks. Incredibly lightweight shoes that have really soft cushioning. It feels just right when I'm hitting my running trail that's just out behind my house. You now can take your daily run in the better than ever Go 16. You can visit brooksrunning.com to learn more. So me here, commercial real estate. So this is just an enormous asset class. There's something like $20 trillion of commercial real estate in the United States alone. And much of it is held in banks, although not exclusively so. And so the concern today is really two or threefold. First, we already have some stress in the banking system, but it's not really credit stress. Mm -hmm. As we talked about, it's a little bit more of liquidity stress. Mm -hmm. So is there some real credit stress in banks associated with commercial real estate? And then the second piece of it is that commercial real estate, of course, is sensitive to the economy. It's sensitive to the economy when it comes to retail. It's sensitive to the economy when it comes to office. And so in a world where banks might be suffering, in a world where demand might be declining because of a recession, this is an industry that's financed by a lot of debt <laughs> and rates start to rise. Is it an industry which is just going to ripple through the whole economy in negative ways? And so there's a lot of doomsaying going on. And I'm curious, Felix, what you make of all of that. Part of it that is similar to the Silicon Valley Bank story is that it's a little hard to know because, say, the value of mortgages, as long as the company makes payments, you don't really know right. <laughs> in your books. It looks totally okay up until the moment when they miss appointment or up until the moment when they need to refinance and then for some reason the refinancing is much more challenging. Right. So part of the difficulty here is judging the health of the market in the first place. One sliver you can look at, that's about 10% of the market or so, 
are these bonds that are backed by commercial real estate mortgages. And there you definitely see the nervousness that you just alluded to. Yeah. So they're traded roughly at 70, 75% to the dollar or so. So there is some expectation of trouble. I think what's unknown at this point and maybe unknowable is how systematic is the problem? Right. And then does the average level of stress really matter? One of the things that I find really interesting about the Silicon Valley Bank story is we don't really have to predict average liquidity, or even if we look at average liquidity, that's not really going to tell us much. What we really want to know is the number of bad apples. Right. And the number of bad apples, almost by definition, is super, super hard to know. So can I imagine that there's some regional bank, which typically these regional banks, they often have big exposure to commercial real estate. Yeah. Is there some regional bank that is not managed very well and that will come under stress? I would imagine I'd be super surprised if that wasn't the case, given the rise in rates, given the rise in vacancy rates, given the rise in hybrid work arrangements that mean fewer people in the offices. All of these things sort of conspire to create difficulties. Yeah. I think you're right to highlight two different things. First, it is these mid and larger regional banks that we should be thinking about. So just to give you a sense, 80% of their assets are loans and maybe 40% of those loans are commercial real estate. So it's the largest thing they own. <laughs> and so it, there is going to be an issue if that part of it buckles. Mm -hmm. But you're also right to say loan to values, which is kind of a critical way to think about how good these loans were, prior to the global financial crisis were 90, 100, 105 <laughs> kinds of loan-to-values. Yes. And now, in the last five years, it's been loan-to-values that are more like 60 or 70, which is a whole different world. Yeah. And then second, these banks have been relatively well-capitalized. Mm -hmm. So all of those makes you think that it's going to be okay. The second thing that I think that you said that really resonated with me, Felix, is it's so hard to talk about an average. Yeah. You pointed <laughs> yes. out that we should be really worried about the extreme. But the general point is, this question is so heterogeneous in so many ways. Yeah. So people think commercial real estate. Well, what does commercial real estate mean? Well, it's actually a lot of different things. Uh -huh. It's multifamily. It's office. It's retail. It's healthcare. It's storage facilities. It's all <laughs> kinds of things. And then it's heterogeneous in a way on geography. So the Boston office market, just as one example, is very different and completely has nothing to do in many ways with the San Fran office market. Right. So... I think the key thing to think hard about is heterogeneity, because this story gets characterized in one way. But after a long period of time where everything goes in one direction, these next several years are going to be about diffusion of outcomes. <laughs> and so it's all the heterogeneity. So it's entirely conceivable to me that the Boston office market is fine in the uh -huh. next five to 10 years yeah. because of life sciences and because of lots of things. And that the San Fran office market is not. Now, what you'll hear about in the headlines is the San Fran office market. You will hear about 40% occupancy rates in certain jurisdictions. Yes. But that does not tell you about what's happening more generally. So it's really about drilling down and thinking about that heterogeneity a lot more than it is about following these headlines, many of which are going to be terrible. Yeah. but have nothing to tell you about what the larger asset class is. <laughs> exactly. I love that point, Mihir. When you look at national office vacancy rates, 
the stats will tell you they were 9.5% in 2019 prior to the pandemic. They're 12% now. Right. That's a relatively large increase, but, you know, it's at moderate levels still. Nothing really much to worry about. And then you go from averages in a city to some measure of what are vacancy rates in downtown. And you double, you triple these vacancy rates. And then it all becomes a question, since so much lending is done by the regional banks, how much coincidence do we have with the sky-high vacancy rates and the lending decisions that these regional banks at one point in time? And even in that respect, the numbers are just all over the place. So I saw numbers that 80% of commercial real estate in these local markets are held by regional banks. And then not long ago, Moody's, I think, did a much better job looking at the numbers. And they said, no, actually, it's sort of 16%. And you go, what do you mean? We're not sure. Is it 80 or 16%? Right. And much of it, I think, is just about What's the slice that I look at? Commercial real estate is not an innocent label. It's not. Office vacancy rates is not an innocent label. Do people go back to work? Even there, the labor department you probably saw, they published a stat that actually we were essentially back to where we were prior to the pandemic, the number of people. The whole idea of the missing worker is kind of gone. They're back. It's kind of gone, yes. Yeah. source of information that I tend to trust is the Stanford survey that says, no, actually 12% of workers are fully remote now, 28% are hybrid, and about 60% are fully in person. So you think, okay, so that's a big change. That's interesting on average. But what does it really mean? Well, if this is some sort of a peak load problem, if all the people who are hybrid now, if they have to be back, say, four days a week or three days a week, and they go the same days, maybe the implications for the demand for office space are not really going to be all that big. Yeah. If they go back to the office and everyone needs to have a cubicle, maybe that's not really a huge change. If everybody goes back and we're using these anchor days exclusively to spend time in meeting rooms, oh my God, then the implications for what that means for the demand for office space are really big. So everything depends on these details. None of it lends itself to making easy predictions about where the market is going to go. Well, this is, I think, something that is really unique about this moment. And it's about commercial real estate, but it's about the economy generally, which is data is telling us so many different things at the same time. And it is a really fundamentally confusing situation. Yeah. <laughs> I think you have to really embrace this idea that heterogeneity matters because speaking in broad terms about anything at the economic aggregate level is really complicated, but especially in commercial real estate. The one thing I would push back against, Felix, is the commonality that will affect this entire sector is interest rates. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So that is something which I think is just because of the nature of leverage in these industries, because of the nature of the way the industry works, which is we think about it as an income-based industry, Mm -hmm. generates a lot of income. So the opportunity cost of putting your money into real estate relative to a two-year treasury really, really matters (laughs) because cap rates move in that way. And that I think is something that we have to really think about because currently there is still an expectation that rates come down relatively quickly. That expectation is in the markets in a large way. Mm -hmm. If that does not turn out to be true 
and rates stay higher longer. Then this industry, I think, in a more generic way than we've been talking about, suffers because that financing underpins everything. Mm -hmm. Now, that's kind of true in the economy more generally. Yeah. But to me, that is one piece of this, which actually you have to really worry about because embedded in current expectations is rate cuts, which matter a lot for this industry. Yeah. And if they yeah. don't become manifest, then that could really be problem, generically speaking. Yeah. One channel that's important here is, of course, the banks. I think the blow will be softened by the availability of other forms of capital. Right. So think life insurance companies and so on and so on. So it's not clear that even a contraction in the banking sector that reflects the rising rates will then ultimately have huge influence over financing opportunities and the value of real estate more generally, because we have a pretty well-diversified source of capital. But I agree with you, the rates will matter a lot. And it's really interesting to think about how even just a chatter, <laughs> now talking about commercial real estate, mm -hmm. if you were on the Fed board and you had to make a decision, I can only imagine how incredibly difficult it must be to look at bond prices and see the discounts that spread nervousness throughout the sector and then maybe having lots of other data points that tell you a completely different story that says, no, actually rates need to not only stay high, but possibly go even higher in order to really stamp out inflation. Do you have a sense of the degree to which all of this influences Fed decisions? I think they are very focused on inflation as they should be. And I think they're secondarily very concerned about the health of the banking sector. Those are the two dominant things that they think about, first and foremost. Yeah. I think the short version is that they are going to do whatever they need to do on inflation. If that means keeping rates higher longer, they'll do it in a flash. And I think they'll probably have to. Yeah. And I think most other things are secondary to that. The question really is whether they're willing to live with 2% inflation or 3 or 4% inflation. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, that may sound like small differences, mm -hmm. but they're not really small differences. And mm -hmm. so that rate piece of it, I think, is going to hinge on when they think they're done. Yeah. And my instinct is they're not going to be done until they get to two. Yeah. Because yeah. that's where they're anchored, as maybe as I think they rightly should be. And one interesting question is, when you say inflation, what exactly do you look at? I have a sense that wages loom really large in those considerations. Yeah. And we have now seen quite a significant deceleration of the rise in wages across many professions. So maybe that says some of the market expectations of rates, maybe not exactly coming down, but not going much, much higher. Maybe some of these expectations are justified. But this is it. You can look at different pieces of this puzzle mm -hmm. and you can find things that are disturbing, right? <laughs> and so this is the really, really hard part. Yeah. The last thing I would say about commercial is I think this heterogeneity speaks to what is potentially a really interesting place to invest money. Mm -hmm. And even at an individual level, thinking harder about income and thinking hard about real assets that produce income can be really interesting. So if you've been chasing crypto and tech for the last 20 years, it's an interesting time to like think harder about commercial real estate as a place where, huh, yeah. that actually generates real income. Yeah. And in local economies, you can really think opportunistically about what can matter. And it can be super interesting mm -hmm. in the mm -hmm. next five years in a way that maybe other sectors aren't nearly quite as interesting. Yeah. And I've seen investors taking interesting positions, some betting on 
the ease with which you can turn office buildings into residences. If you're optimistic on that front, that we do away with some of the difficulties of doing that and some of the regulations, that I think is a fascinating thing to think about, that the housing market and the commercial real estate market will recalibrate in interesting ways in many cities. Yeah. In a way, there's so many interesting entrepreneurial things that can happen in real estate that we don't talk about as entrepreneurship. But if you think about what happens a lot in the world, there's a lot of real estate that is basically entrepreneurship. You buy a property and you redo it and you try to sell it or you try to change its character. And it's actually fascinating for mm-hmm, young people mm-hmm. who are thinking about ways to think about a career in entrepreneurship. Real estate is an area that 30 years ago you would think about. And we haven't talked about it as a really entrepreneurial setting because so much attention has been soaked up by other much more interesting entrepreneurial settings. But actually, I think in the next 20, 30 years, it could be a really interesting place to be entrepreneurial. Here's a bold prediction. There you go. All right. Felix, recommendations. What do you got? I have a culinary recommendation this week. To me, spring is somehow associated with lamb dishes, Hmm. maybe around the religious holidays, but also spring more generally. And I wanted to recommend a recipe by David Tannis. He calls it Persian spice lamb shank. And it's a wonderful thing to eat. That's maybe (laughs) the most important reason to look it up and try to make it. But it's also a fabulous example of how you add just a tiny little twist to a recipe and then it becomes something completely different. So Hmm. his lamb shank recipe is basically just your good old-fashioned braising meat kind of recipe. There's nothing that special about it. And then it's just a combination of spices and eight and a half drops of rose water that totally change what that eating experience is going to be like. And I just love that about cooking, that you have basic techniques that actually are pretty robust and don't change much over time. And then the twists to the basic recipes change everything. So if you're in the mood for lamb, David Tannis, you'll find it in the New York Times collection of recipes. And of course, lots of links on Google that point in similar directions. That sounds great. I confess I came late to lamb and I have come to love it. Yeah, There's richness of flavor that you can't get elsewhere. So that sounds great. What do you have for us? So I have had a little bit of a history of recommending some spy kinds of things. So the spy museum, but also John le Carre. And so I'm going to go with that theme. So first TV show, there is a lovely new show about the Kim Philby scandal. I don't know if you might remember this. This was a very famous scandal involving a British spy who was a double agent for the Soviet Union in the 1950s and 60s. And there's a slightly fictionalized account of it called A Spy Among Friends Mm. that is available on MGM+. And it is fantastic. It's got Damien Lewis and Guy Pearce. And it's just classic spy noir, dark alleys, (laughs) lots of twists and turns, but based on a real story that you cannot believe is true. And so it's a miniseries or it's a movie? It's six episodes. The first five are out already. And I just think it's fantastic. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to give you a slight extra bonus pick on the spy theme, which is I've also had a tradition of recommending Escape the Room. And during the pandemic, there was a virtual Escape the Room. But this time we tried a Escape the Room kit. Oh, where you print out 
all the clues and all the puzzles, and then you use your house to basically create and escape the room. Oh. And it is spectacular. It's called escapekit.com. Fantastic. And the only thing I will say about it is they say you can prep in like 30 minutes for this. It takes like three hours. But the payoff <laughs> is enormous. So escape the room kits at home, including especially escape-kit.com. Wonderful. And this was it for tonight. Thank you for listening. This was After Hours from the TED Audio Collective.